to the Jays Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Shapiro, and over the next hour, we're going to bring in a phenomenal roundtable of sportscasters who will sit down with me to discuss exactly what transpired this afternoon for the Blue Jays after a 19-1 loss to the Houston Astros. Jay Happ was not effective, but then again, the rest of the team wasn't effective, and as a result, the Houston Astros demonstrated exactly why they are, quite frankly, the best team in baseball. Furthermore, the real challenge for the Blue Jays now becomes what exactly management is prepared to do heading into the All-Star break. Now this team sits six games under 500, showing absolutely no signs of becoming a legitimate AL East contender. And considering that that was the bill of goods that was sold from day one and left many of you in the Toronto market in particular excited about what 2017 had to offer, Needless to say, there are a lot of angry, frustrated, bitter Blue Jays fans, and I'm hoping that my roundtable this evening will bring you a little bit of solace, if not from a therapeutic perspective, but maybe offering some catharsis that if you listen to other people discussing the full extent of what this misery represents, maybe you'll feel a little bit better about it moving forward, because there is a reason to be hopeful. It's all doom and gloom, and... I'll apologize in advance if after listening to this podcast, that's the conclusion that you have. The fact remains that the Blue Jays have some important decisions to make, and sometimes making a decision and giving it a chance, whatever that decision ultimately will be, whether it's keeping this ball club together, whether it's going out and maybe getting some free agents to help them at the deadline, some players that can be used in a fashion to reinforce the depth of this team. I can no longer simply preach patience. Not after what happened today. And even though there was a split, a split with the best team in baseball again, and reasons for some teams to look at the glasses being half-filled, I leave it for you, the listener, to decide on tonight's Jay's Journal Podcast Roundtable. So now I've looked up and I'm joined by Adam Corsair, Chris Henderson, and Craig Borden. We've got this roundtable that I've kind of pieced together really quickly during these few hours of... I don't know what I'd call it, guys, introspection about what we just witnessed. This was a difficult pill to swallow. I want to start with you, Adam. What happened today and what conclusion have you reached, if any, after watching the Blue Jays get absolutely shellacked 19-1 to at home on a beautiful Sunday afternoon? Well, the main thing that I noticed today was that um, half just pretty much unraveled right in the get-go. And um, I didn't really expect that to happen at all. And um, when you, what was it in the first inning? Was it five or six runs in the first <laughs> inning? Um, yeah, that's, it was five uh, for a second. Coming down from a five-zip deficit to start the game, uh, that's really hard to come back from, even given this team, uh, given the fact that they're a home run hitting team. I, I don't want to sound like a downer, but I didn't really expect it to be uh, sort of a bounce back game. So I don't know. It, it just seems like when it rains, it pours. I know people hate that uh, cliche, but. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the team's just not clicking, and I don't, I don't know what it is. I'm sorry, guys. Well, and by the way, you mentioned you know being down by five off the hop, guys. That's pretty much been happening on and off all year. I mean, this team dig. I think this team has the worst run differential in the first inning of any American League team. They give up a lot of runs. They give up a lot of runs early, and then they're fighting to claw back pretty much the entire time. Chris, help me understand why. Why is that? What's wrong with this team? Oh, I, I don't know what's wrong. Oddly enough, just to be devil's advocate here, all this unraveled in the second inning, but it has been the first inning that's been killing us this season. And I don't know. You know, I was listening to a different call-in show in another 
uh, a couple days ago and Collar posed the same question and just said, is it because you're facing the top of the lineup? And, um, you know, in this case, I think uh, in this series in particular, it just looked like once they got down, they uh, they just accepted the beating. And that's not the kind of urgency that the fan base wants to see out of, out of the team, especially at such a crucial juncture of the season. I'm going to jump in and say one thing. I think they were ready to uh, go into the break by the time they got that five inning or five run inning earlier in the game. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, I I hate to be that person saying, but I think they used all their bullets the game before. I think they were happy with the split at that point and ready to run into the all-star break and rest up. I just hope they come out of the gate hot. I guess my question is how many, I mean, how much of this has to be attributed to, to it being Houston? Right, like it could just be that the Blue Jays just faced a, an incredibly superior team, and there was just no way. Like I'm, I, I talked to Ari earlier this week, and I'm happy with the split. Like I said that to start. I know that doesn't get us any further um, into any sort of playoff hopes or lighten our spirits, you know, going into the All Star break. But quite frankly, when you face a team like uh, Houston, I was happy with the split. I don't know if anybody agrees with that or not. Well, Adam, you know, what, I, what I would I'm, add, to I'm completely happy with that. <laughs> Yeah. What I would add to that, guys, sorry to jump in on your Ari. What I would add is that I would be happy with the split, you know, like just looking strictly at the win loss column, two two out of four with the best team in the in the majors this year is perfectly fine. However, for me what what's not okay is just the absolute beating that they took in the two losses. And in you know, in such a crucial series that it, it just it like right now this team is realistically fighting to stay relevant in 2017 and to take beatings like that. And like you kind of said, Craig, it almost looked like they were ready to just throw their hands in the air and go into the all-star break. You can't, you just can't play like that. If you want to be considered a playoff team, if I'm the front office, I'm going, okay, guys, if that's the effort you're giving me this weekend, then whatever, I'm shopping who I can. And I guess this season's done because you didn't show me that you wanted it. If you're losing, it's one thing to lose games to a great team, but it's another to get, beaten by 19 or 18 runs rather like that's just and to have it happen twice in three days is just unacceptable well listen it's it's like you mentioned and we talked about this before how you lose is very important in baseball in order for fans to appreciate what your team is made of and adam i'm all for accepting the notion that a split is a good thing how how can it not be the houston astros are 31 games over 500 when you split against a team that's 31 games over 500 you're doing something right but when you lose by 18 runs in a game right, right. before the All-Star break, where your fan base, your long-suffering fan base, with a lot of people who've been on the bandwagon and those who followed from day one and the season ticket holders, expected that at least they would fight back or at least show up, and they didn't. And that's what worries me. That's what worries the brass right now with Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins looking down from their perch. I'm, I'm envisioning, of course, that they, like, sit on the highest floor somewhere at the Sky Dome looking down at this, like, some kind of, you know, Darth Vader-like figure. And I'm thinking to myself... Or bird on a wire. Down, or bird on a yeah. wire, right. He's looking down, and he's thinking to himself, <laughs> what is my team made of? And, and I ask you, Craig, what is this team really made of? Did this game... What did this game do for you other than realize that they're very brittle, it seems? To me, this it, it, this either needs to be the wake 
and uh, smell the roses thing, or like I, like you were saying, it needs to be the shopping shopping point for the management. Um, if they don't come out of the first couple of games after the high All Star break with a fresh breeze, you know, I don't think this is going to be the team that's going to carry us to the promised land this year. Um, and I'm going to look at those first couple of games. I forget who we're playing, but I might be able to pull the schedule up here real quick. I think it's Boston, but um, Tigers. Tigers. Or Detroit, yeah. Yeah, Detroit. Yeah, and of course yeah. the game I'm playing, I'm going to in uh, at Fenway Park on the 17th. <laughs> so oh, you're going to be in my territory, first... man. You're going to be in New England. Yeah, there you go. So yeah. maybe we'll have to hook up Adam and see what we can get a beer or something. <laughs> but anyways, be, be those, those first couple them. games, <laughs> <laughs> those first couple series, I'm gonna, especially the one against the Tigers, the Tigers are in that same kind of ballpark as we are. Been losing these giant nineteen to nothing, nineteen to one games, but um, they're in that same area as us, where they don't know to you know start selling things off or hold on and hope for the best. So it's going to be fun to see if we can grasp that series in Detroit right off the bat and run with it and see if we have something to play with here or not. I'll jump in. Um, yeah, the schedule after the All Star break that's that does not look good because we got three straight road series. So we got Detroit, Red Sox, and uh, Cleveland. Cleveland. And um, yeah, Cleveland. That's uh, not something I would like to go with right after the All-Star break. But I mean, I guess, I don't know. Am I the only one that, maybe I am, that's sort of excited about the aspect of, not, I don't want to say rebuild. I hate, I hate these terms that have been throwing out like rebuild and retool, but like sort of like a refreshing after the, like if they do sell off some pieces to me that's sort of like okay yeah we throw in the towel like for this year essentially that's which whatever like that's baseball that's what happens but and i don't know i'm i'm sort of excited about the aspect of uh getting back assets for the future i don't know if anybody else feels that way for me it totally depends on who they're selling you know like for and i agree with you i mean at this point i uh, you know i've been an optimist for, for most of the year but the last kind of couple of weeks in particular have just sort of killed it for me even with the even with the split and the and the Yankee series win I still kind of feel worse about the team I think now than I did three weeks ago but but uh, for me it depends on who they're willing to trade because right now I, I'm not sure how much they're going to get for guys like um, Estrada or Batista or uh, Liriano the guys that are on expiring contracts they can get a few mm-hmm. pieces that are kind of maybe wild cards that may, may end up being something that may not. It's hard to say, but I think if you're going to really go for, for that sort of thing, then I think you have to look at – it depends, you know, it depends on what kind of philosophy they're looking at. But uh, in order to get significant pieces back, they have to, you know, look at the Donaldsons and the Haps and stuff that have an extra year of control. And that's something that I think only the real committed fan bases could ever really be excited about because, uh, you know, my friends that have take, kind of taken a real interest in the last few years – I know they're not going to be thrilled about that, and I don't blame them, but uh, I also do agree with you that uh, the time maybe may have come. Right. We're getting into no, that I, ballpark I, with a tipping point on that subject as far as you guys are talking about, but like you, we've talked about a few times here where you trade the franchise, you trade the Josh Donaldsons, and, uh, or do you, you know, stop short of that? Maybe it's time to sell high on some guys. I've always been one of those people that I've been shocked that Justin Smoke has had the turnaround that he has. I've been saying for years that if he actually took some patience at the plate, maybe he could actually do something really solid in the season. This is the first time I feel like anybody has seen what Justin Smoke can do 
period. Maybe it's time to go, hey, you know, it's great and wonderful that you did a great year for us, but <laughs> is he going to keep doing it is the next question. So you had those guys that are sitting there too, along with, I think, a minor league system that is not as far off as everybody else seems to think we are. I would call it more of a retooling than or a restructure than the typical rebuild. And I think there's nothing wrong with embracing whatever vernacular we're working with, retool, refresh, rebuild, restructuring, renovations. I don't care. I think what's important is that we're heading in a direction. And that's what I'm hearing from all three of you is, look, there's nothing wrong with, with changing course when your fan base is already aware of what what the fundamental challenges are. Like the, the, the fan base looks at this team and realizes they're not good enough. I'm, I'm still like, like you all have at various points, I'm still holding out that there's time and that they might have a chance to rely on this leadership base to get some of their magic back. But considering the performances of those individual leaders, and, and today was kind of a microcosm of that because Josh Donaldson really played his guts out on the field. I mean, he, he made a couple of amazing defensive plays that both failed to be out because of circumstances. Uh, one was a diving play where he threw over first after he stabbed it down the line. And the other one, I think, was uh, a throwing error that he had game. But, I mean, he was everywhere. He was trying to make everything happen. And so here we are realizing that he will likely be the first domino to fall. And it's going to be met with a lot of sadness and indignation and frustration. It's not the first time it's happened in this market. It's not the last. People got over Edwin, or at least most of them got over Edwin. Not everyone has, given how Morales has kind of struggled now in the last little while. But I'm going to start with you, uh, Chris. How much courage should the fan have and confidence that this front office will make good, solid moves and in their best interest so we won't have to wait another you know, 23 years for competitive baseball? Well, for me as a fan, I think it comes down to how far, you know, we can use whatever term we want to use for the rebuild or refresh or whatever. But to me, I'm perfectly okay, and I'm even in support of the idea of trading guys like Hap and Donaldson because they've only got a year left in their contracts. And, uh, you know, Hap's 34, I believe, and Donaldson's getting to the point where he's going to be reaching his last contract, which is going to be a major one. Um, You know, and at that point, you're overpaying for guys once once they're getting on the wrong half of 35 uh, rarely are they earning earning everything that they're getting paid. So Donaldson's a tricky one. I mean, you could see you could see an argument for keeping him into the next into the next um, age of the Blue Jays here. But uh, for me, as long as they don't touch guys like Sanchez and Stroman and Osuna, to then to me that's a, a shorter rebuild, and that's something that I think fans should be willing to accept. If they trade off uh, any of those three, though, then, uh, you know, even myself, I know I'll be disappointed and, and frustrated, likely, because I don't want to see 20 years or more between playoff appearances. I, a couple years is fine. Uh, if you're building with some exciting pieces, to me, that's okay. But uh, I just well, don't want to see exciting. them strip it right down. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm – I don't want to say I'm for trading Josh Donaldson, but I guess I'm a little hesitant about um, – approaching him in the offseason because on the one hand, I mean, I don't know how much confidence you guys have of the Blue Jays' ability to be able to re-sign him. Um, I'm not sure it's going to be a deal. Not much. First of all, yeah, it's not going to be a deal over five years. That's just like, that's just the formula. Um, and he's going to be entering free agency at, uh, what, 32, 33. And on the other hand, the aspect of how Chulawitsky has been playing 
scares me, and I, I maybe it's a, a, a poor, um, a false equivalency, but it's when you apply that same sort of regression towards Donaldson, that sooner or later will happen. Um, I'm not sure I'm comfortable giving him a huge contract. Um, so now, if we have the opportunity to trade him now to get maximum return, I'm not necessarily against that. In fact, I'm more and more leaning towards that. So, Craig, tell me, what's, what's in your opinion, the right return for Josh Donaldson if this organization trades him this year? My return on that is you're getting prospects that are probably in the ballpark of minor league or major league ready. You're not going to be getting somebody that's a single A player. We got plenty of guts that are at single A level with the you know, pitching and everything. So I don't see anybody coming out of the gate and going, "Hey, I'll give you these five you know minor leaguers," unless they're you know top prospects of some sort. Josh Donaldson has been a perennial MVP his whole career. Yes, he's had an injury injured. Uh, season here, but as far as things go, he's still producing. He's had a little bit of a rough go here lately, but he is showing signs of coming out of it and being himself. If I'm going to be trading Josh Donaldson, I'm taking the whole farm from somebody. It's going to look more like the... Uh, um, I, I find it hilarious that, that looking at trades and stuff from over the offseason, because Adam Eaton basically gave the White Sox the you know, trade for the farm, and he's nothing compared to Josh Donaldson. You got Yohan Mankata that went to the White Sox over the off season, along with Giolito. <laughs> you know, the, that, yeah. that's the kind of trade you're looking for if you're going to dangle Josh Donaldson out there. And I think if you're doing that, I honestly think you can still get that same trade value regardless over the off season or even at the trade deadline next year. So that's my only argument with it because right now Josh Donaldson is, the, for the most part, the offense of the Toronto Blue Jays. If you think you have a chance at all, you hold on to him for the off season and hope that you can, you know, string something along to begin with and see how you get this off. Uh, we start off like we are right now in 2017 and 2018. I would go ahead and just ditch him, even if it's a month into the season. <laughs> you know, it's just how it is. But I still think that trade value will be there regardless because somebody's going to want a hard-hitting, solid, grinding third baseman to play on their team. So couldn't you say that you'd be able to get something more now with a year of control rather than wait until next year? Like, wouldn't you just want to maximize it? I think maximizing it's one thing, but I think yeah, that's where you got to weigh the point where if you think you're going to have a competing team at all next year or not, right. is that is that worth that to you? Or is it more worth it to keep the fan base close to, hey, you know what, we're not, we might be done this year, but we still have a good shot for next year type thing. You know right. what I mean? Because we still have all that right. pitching. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to yeah. get a full season out of Aaron Sanchez and Marcus Stroman who – as he puts it, should be an all-star this year. And there's plenty of good pitching depth coming up the way here. It's Connor Green's been putting a really good season together for the New Hampshire Fisher Cats, and I know some of the other guys have been having some rough goes at it, but they're finding themselves pretty quickly. So there's a good shot of having a competitive team. It might be a younger team, but that might be where they need to start heading in the beginning here because then it's the new management's team rather than this being the kind of weird blend that we have from the Anthopolis era into the new stuff right now. Mm -hmm. Time tends to be a fleeting commodity when you're a, a fan or a baseball player. It's hard to believe that they got this old this quickly, if you really think about it. I mean, we're just, if you go back to September 2015, 
there was the ceiling of not only were they going to be competitive that year, but the window was open. And now here we are basically lamenting that the window is closed. This kind of banter that usually comes with knowing that you're not going to contend. So my question, I'm going to ask Adam this. Uh, Adam, my question to you is, where's the fan value? We know that they pre-sold tickets. They've, uh, they've gotten sponsorship deals. Whether you're a supporter of the team, an advertiser, or just the everyday fan, don't you think that trading Josh Donaldson is basically a slap in the face? In terms of like the regular, ordinary fan that doesn't follow this team, as closely as like the hardcore fans, yeah, I can see that. It, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a slap in the face, but it's a bad. Uh, if you want to equate slap in the face to bad PR, then yeah, perhaps I I, I can see that. But um, so for the casual fans, yeah, maybe trading away Josh Donaldson would be a little risky in terms of um, people wanting to show up to the ballpark to watch uh, a team that's pretty much not playing to their potential. Um, Fair enough. But on the other hand, Fair like enough. yeah. I was going to say, but hardcore fans and those who are sportscasters and journalists like the three of you know that I'm referring to savvy fans who recognize that instead of spending a little bit more for Edwin, they went and got Morales. Instead of going out and Mm -hmm. giving Cecil what he needed in order to get the uh, left-handed high-leverage pitcher, we found some bargain basement options. This is a pattern, right? Even Hap, instead of spending $30 million on getting David Price here, we rationalized it by saying we were able to pick up Estrada and Hap. And of course, last year it worked, but this year it's been an unmitigated disaster. In fact, you could argue that the reason the Blue Jays are not able to compete this year in the American League East is because Jay Hap and Marco Estrada have completely fallen off the map in terms of productivity. No, that's fair. It's absolutely fair. Um, so I guess for the hardcore fans, then yeah, it, it's difficult to find a reason other than just your loyalty to the fan, to the to the team itself. Um, I guess you would have to search and dig deep down and say like, and just have faith for the future and to say that this is just for the best. We have to we have to just trust the process. I know that's again another cliche, but what else can you do? I, I don't I don't know what what other options we could have. I think what I think what the front office has to weigh is. You know, at some point, if the team is going to fall off and, you know, we're there or on the very much cusp of it, um, you ha- they have to weigh whether they see short-term pain for long-term game uh, as being the better path. You know, if you carry on and deny, you know, and it's, I'm not I'm about to say that the Blue Jays couldn't still turn the season around and do something, but just given the, the various variables, it's not a great way to put it, but given the various variables that are at play it. here, yeah, various variables, and, you know, given the, <laughs> the way the contracts are and the age of the, of the core of the team, you know, it, to ignore those warning signs and just carry on and to go ahead and exercise Batista's option and to re-sign Donaldson to a 10-year contract when he's going to be, he's 31 at the moment, he'll be 32 in December. Um, you know, it's just, it's not, I guess we've seen it happen enough and it finally caught up with the Yankees. Um, you know, they did have a shorter retool and the younger generation that's come along has been great, but I had a great deal of satisfaction watching the Yankees fall out of it as a playoff contender because for years they were just buying their way into into the playoffs and and uh the blue jays can't just can't do that they have enough contracts that uh that are in place that they, they that they need to restructure things if they want to be competitive in 2018 or 19 I, i'm starting to lose faith that this group could be competitive next year just given the way the lack of fight i'm seeing in them but 
maybe I'm just in a down spot in the season. Who knows? Here's my fear. My fear from listening to this is that this franchise might get itself into the same kind of trouble that previous regimes have experienced, talking about the Ash Ricciardi um, year, half year, one to two year plans, where it seems like they would invest in their farm system, but then they go out and make a weird free agent signing that didn't really fit the direction they were going in. And we've had some really weird free agent signings in this market. Um, that seemed really good at first on paper, but didn't pan out. You know, whether it was going out and getting Roger Clemens in his prime or whether get, it was getting um, Frank Thomas or Jose Canseco or B.J. Ryan, um, you know, A.J. Burnett. There was always some kind of weird phase where the Blue Jays put in that 100 category for a great stretch of time. And in this market, we know they're a 500 baseball team and there is no postseason that because of the nature of a lot of these fair weather bandwagon jumping fans, you start getting 15,000 at the Rogers center. And, and we know that we're not going to buy this argument that they used to pull out on us, which was, if you show up, we'll invest in the team because it's, it's ass backwards. The way it should work is Mm -hmm. we'll invest in the team and you'll show up. And I fear that this organization, this 160 million payroll that we're at. I want to know what you guys think about this, and I'll start with Chris. Is this $160 million threshold the high-water mark? Do you see Shapiro and Atkins having the mandate to go and actually invest in this team while the young talent is developing, or are we going to be in for some really lean years? I don't think, you know, it'll be, I think it'll depend on how competitive the team is, and and Rodgers, to me, in the last few years, has shown a willingness to spend a little more than I expected they would. You know, to to it's not to say that they shouldn't be. I'm not saying that at all. But uh, you know, just from having been a fan for the last two and a half decades or or more, um, there's been plenty of opportunities to to see spending going on that didn't take place. And to me, I was I've been surprised with how much they actually have been willing to in the last few years. I don't think that if you know if the team ends up not being competitive in the next couple of years and, and the attendance goes down, I don't think we're going to see 160 million dollar payrolls and. And uh, we have some contracts, you know, in particular, Donald's, or uh, Tulowitzki's and Martin's. You know, they're each making $20 million annually uh, for the next few anyway. And uh, so there's going to be, you know, and then, you know, Marcus Stroman's making $3.4 million this year, but he's going to be going up. You know, he's going to be making good money in no time. Same goes for Sanchez and Osuna. So I don't see them adding a lot of pieces until – until the time is to strike. Maybe the next time that I see them add pieces again, it's kind of a situation like Anthopolis where it's like, okay, we've got the core. Let's add some uh, icing for the cake. So I know where you guys are going with this. And as far as I just happen to look this up as it popped into my head, um, the 41 seasons that the Toronto Blue Jays have been active in the major leagues, we are basically a 500-level team for the whole record of everything. I don't know if you've ever looked this up, but our total win percentage as a team, period, is .498. Wow. I find that a little amusing and surprising because yeah, you remember how it is, was in the late set, in the late 80s. We were you know the best team in baseball and then crushed it into the 90s and then fell off the planet again. Um, I don't mm. still see us being that team that's fallen off the planet. Maybe it's because I have the looking glass of seeing what's going on in the minor leagues on a daily basis, but <laughs> maybe there's something I'm not seeing here. Yeah, well, we have plenty of guys that are that. falling off. There's plenty of falling off here that we're getting out of our main guys. Um, I said this on the last podcast that I, yeah, I I know that we're going to have the Tulo and the Martin contract eventually coming off here, but as soon as you have that coming off, you're talking about having to pay Stroman, 
Sanchez, Asuna, totally. that young core that we are slowly developing, yep. and we're doing it. That's the one thing I'm going to give the management credit to, that they have been doing a good job of vitalizing that minor league pipe. Yes, it's great that you know prospects are prospects, and it's nice to know you had these things coming, but I don't disagree with what Anthopolis did and trade the farm either because I can win now or I could ho- always hope for the future. I think right now this is where you do – kind of take that step back, hope for the future, and I don't think the future is going to be as far away as everybody seems to think. Um, I was watching the Futures game today, and right when I got back from Dedeen, Florida, and I only got to see a little bit of the DJ's game while I was down there because of some fun I had going on, but um, as far as things go, Vladimir Guerrero went two for four in the game, two singles, and the one he just completely annihilated the left center field. And this is off of a guy that was, um, I want to say for the Cincinnati Reds, like one of their high-end prospects, pitching-wise, that was two levels above where Vladimir Guerrero currently is standing. I guess, yes, him and Bo Bichette are going to be starting their, you know, their tenure with the the Dunedin Blue Jays this coming week. But there's some, other than that, there's plenty of talent coming. So you got a team that you might be able to force into some of this young talent with these good free agent markets in the next couple of seasons, shape that team any way you want it. And I'm starting to wonder more and more if the management is thinking in that same ballpark. Well, let's, let's be absolutely candid and clear that history would have been intriguing for us to see if Anthopolis had stayed the course with the organization. If all the politics of how he ultimately left the club hadn't happened, if he was still the manager and he had Paul Beeston as his benefactor the way that he was during his entire era, it would have been fascinating to see how much money the Blue Jays would, prepare, would be prepared to spend on this window. Because let's, you know, you mentioned the late 80s. Yes, the Toronto Blue Jays were competitive in the late 80s, but they needed, a, they needed the right leadership and a serious injection of pay in order to get the players that they ultimately recruited to help them get over the top in 92 and 93. It was a textbook case of a franchise relying on great minor league development and great on-field personnel to eventually go out and get all the mercenaries that had stopped them throughout the course of the 1980s, right? We're talking about Ricky Henderson. We're talking about Dave Stewart, Jack mm-hmm. Moore, great villains, the who's who gallery of Batman villains. So we've seen, we've seen plenty of examples where a lot of things have to go right. But for an organization like the Blue Jays to have success that they've had in the past, it's been about stockpiling talent and then spending money on the free agents, a.k.a. mercenaries who get you over the hump. Do you really see the Shapiro and Atkins regime doing that? Because I'm envisioning that they'll just end up building the minor league system and maybe doing something a little bit like what the Maple Leafs set out to do, even though they've changed their minds too, because now they've signed veteran players. Do you see the Blue Jays maybe, let's start with you, uh, Craig, do you see the Blue Jays not only developing the Vlad Guerreros, the Bobachets of the world, but then maybe going out and spending money to get some great veteran leadership or maybe some of this present talent to help make that transition more palatable? I think you already have two people that are going to definitely be around. I just don't see anybody picking up the Tulinski-Martin contracts. I think one way or the other, you're going to have those two veteran presences in our dugout. Um, the next thing, though, you guys seen what the free agent market's going to look like in the next couple of years as these guys are coming up through the system. 
they might have some guys that might fall down the ranks just because the you know Mike Trout's, Brooks Harper's of the world are going to be out on the on the line here for anybody to grab. Be able all of a sudden bargain somebody that was is an everyday solid player. I don't think it's going to be somebody quite at the level of Josh Donaldson, but you might be getting somebody in that ballpark of tipping into the thirties that is like I said, somebody solid that should be playing every day and leading a team, but because of the market is going to get forced out kind of like Jose and uh, Edwin did this past season. Mm-hmm. But I do full on believe that they're going to hold on to, I think Vladimir Guerrero is going to be a blue Jay one way or the other. He might be the only untouchable, but I think you have some other close people in that, you know, argument as well at, right after that with the Boba Shets and, um, Edward Oliveris has been slowly making a very big name for himself for the Lansing Lugnuts. And then I honestly am starting to think that Danny Jansen for the New Hampshire Fisher Cats is going to maybe possibly finally be the mm-hmm. Blue Jays catcher that we actually bring through the ranks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, um, I had Jerry Goldberg Strassler on my show last week, you know, the voice of the Lansing Lugnuts. And if, uh, if you listen to that spot with, that I had with him, he, he's clear that we have a lot of great things to look forward to, but he cautioned, he urged caution. And this is what I want. I'd like to get your opinion, whether, you know, Adam or, or Chris, when we say be just because it'll take time therein again, lies that fear that I have personally, that management will start saving money, developing talent. And the next thing you know, baseball will become a distant third in the relevancy of the sports Toronto sports totem scene. And considering how hard, and how long it took for them to get to the church. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I'll I'll admit straight up that like I'm not inundated in the market like you guys are. Like I'm not I live obviously in New England, so but I from everything I see, from everything I read, I don't think they have a choice but to at least at the very least give off the impression that they're trying to be competitive and to make signings that um at least allude to that because I think the Blue Jays, I think they've dug themselves in sort of a cultural hole that the Blue Jays are so inundated in Toronto that they they, ha- they can't, they, I don't think they can afford to just sell a full-on rebuild. I think they have to pursue free agents. I think they have to spend money in order to be somewhat competitive. Maybe not to the level like at, at the Yankees are and the Red Sox are. Maybe they can get by with that. But they, I think they have to at least try and not sell us on a rebuild. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, as I was kind of saying earlier on, I think that's why if they're trying to sell the idea of of a mini rebuild or a retool, then keeping guys like Marcus Stroman and Aaron Sanchez and Roberto Suna is the next kind of veteran. They'll be the next veteran core by the time the Guerreros and Bichette's and, and uh, potentially Danny Jansen's come up. You know, they have they can't strip it down to nothing or the fan base will just shut down. And especially now because the Maple Leafs are actually relevant for the first time in for well over a decade and you know, the Raptors are gonna are gonna continue to be competitive. So it is a real thing that if they're not at least giving the fans the impression that there is a reason to believe, then then we've seen what happens to the Rogers Center. It gets quiet pretty quickly. And by the way, that's uh, the reason I explained the Patrick Marlowe free agent acquisition for the Maple Leafs the way I do whenever I'm on shows, radio, whatever, I talk about the fact that it legitimizes an organization's intentions. You may not agree with the way that they're building the team necessarily, and a lot of people have problem with bring, problems with bringing in a 38-year-old veteran into the fray when you've got all these young kids. 
But it, I think it comes back to what I mentioned earlier in, in the show, fan value. Where's the fan value? I mean, guys, we're not millionaires. We have our threshold of disposable income and we put away our hard-earned dollars so we can travel through the lovely Gardner Expressway and that malicious DVP experience getting down to the you know downtown Toronto for those for those of us of course that don't have to go from Saskatchewan or Rochester or New England I mean but at the end of the day you're spending money to get to the Rogers Centre it's an expensive prospect with parking and concessions and here you are on a Sunday afternoon sitting down to after being fed goods a marketed media campaign about how you're an AL East contender and you lose 19 to one. What are we supposed to make of that? To me, that's a colossal failure, both from a business perspective and from a sport team competitive perspective. It's, it's just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, there must be so many bitter people and I, I don't even want to imagine what the J-Stock experience must have been after the game. I, I actually debated opening the line so I could kind of share in that, uh, you know, verbal abuse that would follow. But, you know, my degree is in sports psychology isn't completed yet. <laughs> I mean, I understand the frustration, right? I, I, I mean, I guess for the diehards, like, it doesn't matter if they win or lose. You're going to go anyway. And uh, to me, it doesn't – seeing them at Fenway or even taking up the drive to Toronto to see them at, at the Rogers Center, for me personally, it doesn't matter because, to me, that's an experience. Um, in and of itself, but at the same time, I can understand why it'd be frustrating, and I can understand why people would be of the mindset of, well, if they're not going to to bother, neither should I. I get it. Um, I guess it just goes back to the notion of you just have to. Baseball is a game of ebb and flows, right? And you're not going to make postseason every season. They're going to be down years. It's just part of it, and it makes. Uh, moments like what we had in 2015 and even 2016 that makes those moments that much better for those that stick around. I I think we have to be very careful when we identify what hardcore fans really like. I mean, we might be diehard fans who will follow our team through thick and thin, but when a team is unable to compete through any stretch of time, like it's about consistency. We talked about this on previous shows. I've spoken about this at Saint Ad Nauseum with all three of you. You need runs and momentum to get to get going in a direction to show the fans that you're a, a capable team. And we don't want them to blow it up and rebuild it. And we genuinely believe that there's a chance they can compete, but they haven't been able to show that. These blowout losses happen right. about once a week, and then we shrug it off. And then the mainstream media says it's just one game, and then a bunch of you know, people on social media remind us that this has been like a broken record. It's starting to feel like Groundhog Day. I feel like Bill Murray reaching for my alarm clock and realizing that I keep <laughs> hitting that Blue Jays sign, and, and it's just a matter of time before this team gets absolutely blown out of the water. And the pitching is there. That's what's so frustrating about it. It's almost as if collectively something's going on with this team where they slump their shoulders and decide after the first or second inning, we're not going to be in this game. So let's just kind of take our lumps, and maybe tomorrow we'll be better, like Dave Steve. Before you all blame it all on Pug to Tony Phil or anything, but in the Groundhog Day, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm a, I agree with you, Ari. It, it felt like that, but it, it is not one more game anymore. We over the weekend here against the Astros, we had two thrashings. So yeah, we laid it out a little bit on them on the, the other two games in the series, but it still was two games. And I correct me if I'm wrong. I think there was at least one other one this week that we got licked pretty well. <laughs> Um, not terribly sure off the top of my head. I'd have to look at the stats and stuff, but um, part of that's also because I have my head in the minor league stuff. <laughs> but Maybe that's a good place to have your head. Quite it, it is a reoccurring broken record thing as far as it goes. 
<laughs> I mean, thrashing, Craig, let, let's be clear here. Thrashing, as I understand it, is the art of being pummeled collectively. We were pummeled by not just the entire team, but how many times were our pitchers prepared to throw what they, the junk that they threw to the Altuves and the George Springers? I kept tweeting that those two alone are single-handedly crippling our chances to get a series win. It's just amazing to me. It makes me wonder, is everyone on the same page? Because, you know, these pitchers are capable. But did you really expect that Aaron Sanchez and Jay Happ would get blown out in the series when it started? No way. And I definitely didn't think Evan Gaddis would ever have a four RBI game in this season. But that's besides the point. <laughs> and Altuve, I mean, guys, I don't know about you, but watching that whirling dervish of activity, that diminutive monster, what a player. He might be, to me, he pound for pound is the most talented baseball player playing. Like, in terms of size and package, no one offers you mm-hmm. as Altuve. Would you agree with that statement? I'm happy with that he's, statement. He's like Dustin Pedroia in his prime. He's Pedroia 2.0. But better, I think. Maybe even better, yeah. Because, I mean, Pedroia was known for, for, for being able to bring speed to his game and, and some power, but Altuve just looked to turn anything on at any time. And he's got such an amazing sense. That's, that's what I think bothered me about this series, gentlemen, is that from watching the way the Blue Jays tried to compete, the team they were against just seemed more intelligent, savvy, taking advantage of their speed, bunting runners along, and putting runners in scoring position. And this game today, having glorious opportunities in delivering. And, and we know baseball is a game of momentum. And this afternoon when they were down 5 nothing, Kevin Pillar came up with a glorious opportunity to play to run with a runner at third and less than two outs. And, geez, what do you think happened? The story of our season. Runners in scoring position. 15th in the American <laughs> League, gentlemen. Discuss. 15th in the American League. $160 payroll. And we want to blame management for not bringing in the talent? What about the fact that the talent we have is simply not performing? Who outside of just is having the kind of year that makes you say that we have a chance to feel confident about their performance. Uh, everyone's yeah, either not, at mean or they're, or they're struggling. Yeah, on the offensive side, there there hasn't been all that much to get excited about. It really hasn't. And and I think, you know, it's funny because you look at that, we've talked, we've been talking about the rotation quite a bit, and, and we haven't had the kind of years that we should have hoped for or should have gotten from Jay Happ or or um, you know, the, and the guy that I keep thinking about that uh, you know, for me, when I set up my uh, my uh, MLB the Show lineup, I had Aaron Sanchez as the <laughs> as the lead starter, and we've gotten basically nothing from him yet this this season. So to to look at just the contributions, really, Marcus Stroman's the only guy in the rotation that we have got, and somehow the offense is a bigger problem than the rotation, <laughs> at least in my estimation. So I mean, this that's why at this point it's like, wow, I mean. There's every reason when you look on paper to believe in the club, but uh, boy, oh boy, it's getting awfully late to keep making excuses for them. They're a broken team at this point, and unless somebody steps up, you're going to have these issues continuing. Um, you can't have these games where I was just doing a little bit of a deeper dive into the box score from today's game. The only person that didn't have any run production of any sort was the veteran Carlos Beltran went 0 for 4 and didn't score a run or drive in a run. Everybody else in the lineup either scored or drove in a run, and there's plenty of guys in this lineup here that had multiple RBIs, and it's all in the 3-4 hole, 3-5 hole. Yeah. So I guess what bothers me have the most um, about this team, too, is that um, I think they're a little behind the curve in terms of um, where – at least the evidence that has been shown with the past two World Series um, – I think the whole 
you got to hit for power if it's home run or bust. I think that's done. I think we're beyond that now, and I think that's what the Blue Jays have been built on, and it's just not working. So to rely on the long ball as much as they have, I know, Ari, you just mentioned earlier that Houston was doing all the, all the right things. Yeah, they, they were hitting home runs, but that's not their exclusive talent. And if the Blue Jays aren't hitting home runs, they're not winning. Houston is not a power team built on power, but the reason they can exhibit it is because they play station-to-station baseball and clutter up the base paths and put all the pressure on the opposing starter. And that's ultimately what was the downfall for both Aaron Sanchez and Jay Happ. They were around the plate. They had good stuff, both of them, but they were around the plate. They weren't necessarily getting calls, and they had to face the hitter under less than favorable circumstances. So if you're George Springer and you were coming up against Aaron Sanchez and you know he wasn't getting close calls, you sat back and waited for the fastball, low fastball, outside, inside, and then you turn on it and you end up with three hits and end up being like Mm -hmm. fifth time in a row that you've got three hits in a game. How's he doing it? He's got a supporting lineup and his management puts him in a position to succeed. Troy Lewitsky is not being put into positions to succeed necessarily, but that seems to be okay in this market because we expect him to do well. He's Troy Tillowitzki. But I've always argued that you've got to pay close attention to how you build your lineup, and you want to talk about being a broken team. This team has a leadoff hitter. Who's, their leadoff hitter is Jose Bautista. If that doesn't scream mm-hmm. dysfunctional, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Full agreement with the fact that Bautista batting uh, leadoff and batting only 234 is broken. <laughs> it's um, getting horrendous. But, and, and on your point about what the Astros are doing right, and this is why they are so many games above 500 and are arguably one of the best teams in baseball, they're doing what we were doing the last two years. Yeah, you're not sitting on waiting for the home run. You get guys on, put the pressure on the opposing pitcher, and then if you do hit the home run, it's great and wonderful. But right now, we, if you can't get a guy on base, and I'm just going to say we need more of the Billy Bean money ball idea going on here. I don't care if you just do not strike out. Get on base. I don't care what you do after that. Just yep. get on base and move around. <laughs> don't steal bases. Don't do anything stupid. Just get on base. And then what? The, what there's still plenty of talent in this lineup. Yeah, we're not hitting all at once right now. But this point that you, it, nobody's going to hit when they're all swinging for the ball, the uh, fence every time. Let them hit the ball and play. Yeah. And I feel like that's the reason Justin Smoke is having the better year out of everybody in the lineup. Yeah, he's hitting home runs and everything, but he has also had his fair share of hits the other way too. I would say a lot more than his last, previous seasons, especially at this point. You know, you don't bat all of a sudden 300 if you're not if you're just pulling the ball to the right field every time. That's right. He's he's doing great things. That that's a player that clearly in the off season made a commitment to change his approach to the plate. And I think all four of us are savvy enough and observant enough to notice that it's not an apparition. It was obvious in spring training. He looked better. I think he had a good spring if memory serves. And then if you kind of look at his performance in April, he started saying, Oh, it doesn't matter where he's hitting. He's come prepared to have the right approach at the plate. And this is not a team that's known for that. Our biggest challenge, I think the Blue Jays struggle with players who go up there and they're not really what they're doing. Um, one player that in particular has looked confused in the last three weeks is Kendris Morales because I think he's he's overdoing it. I think rather than being supposed to be, which is a very consistent switch hitter, he's starting to show that he's pressing. He's pressing because the guys in front of him and behind him aren't getting the job done. And when you're Jose Bautista, for example, and you're hitting over 300, uh, you know, with a 400 on base percentage, and the team is six and ten with you leading off, 
It's not working because I, I don't care how well he does in the leadoff spot. I care about how well the lineup and the team performs. And it seems like we're ignoring the important metrics, which is what is really your best lineup? What is your best use of the bullpen? It's another thing that isn't talked about. The fact that even John Gibbs pressing his, his inability to manage the bullpen properly in the opening game of the Boston series set the tone for the end result of that entire series. The team was demoralized. They, sh- they could have won that first game, just like they could have won two mm-hmm. of the three games against Baltimore. And then to go into New York, show some semblance of life, and lay the kinds of eggs that they laid during this weekend, it's baffling. It's what makes a lot of people call in and, 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 and vent and troll the internet and say that the sky is falling, which is a shame because we know it's a talented ball club, isn't it? And it is a talented ball club, and it is sad to see it like this. We know what this team could do. Watch, we watched it the last two years, and they were, you know, perennial playoff teams, and nobody really questioned it. It was just, yeah, we started off 2015 slow and made the right moves, and then, hey, you know, this is nobody's going to stop us. We rolled that same team pretty much into 2016 and steamrolled our way right into the playoffs. It was just, yeah, we ended up having to go through the wild card game, but we won. It was that simple. What if, yeah, we've lost some key part, parts, I think, but I what we put back into place, I think – built an adequate playoff team. And with all these little, you know, mismanagements and whatnot that we were just, Ari was this point of pointing out, this might be contributors to why we might not be hitting on all cylinders. Well, I'm wondering at one po- at what point, and, and I'm curious your opinion on this, Chris, at what point might management start playing the injuries card and say, you know, we've had an average of 12 players on the DL at any given time we don't have our regular second baseman. We've had a revolving door policy in left field. We've had to use our catcher third. We've had to use our high leverage right-handed reliever to be a starter. Like my concern also is that this can be spun in very creative ways. Will Matt be brave enough to say we just had a lot of slack-jawed yokels who didn't the money that we based on the the money that we paid them, or will they say we had a really difficult year with injuries and circumstances? So. You know, we're not that disappointed. What do you think is going to happen when the dust is settled? I don't think they'll, uh, you know, I think maybe they'll point, maybe use the whole injury angle as just a reason for for why the team needs to go in a different direction. Because as we know, as players get older, they get hurt more frequently. Even myself, the other day I was playing in a softball game and felt the first hamstring tug I've ever had in my life. I went, oh, great, I'm 33 and this starts now. <laughs> and I think about these guys that are in the same kind of, same kind of age range that I'm in and, and uh, you know, I'm not a professional athlete. So it's the, the injuries become more of a reality as you get older. And we were incredibly lucky uh, with, as Blue Jays fans to witness the rotation staying as healthy, healthy as it did last year, which was a huge contributing factor. But uh, to me, the injuries haven't been the problem uh, to me. I mean, you know, I shouldn't even say that. Uh, it, maybe it's, uh, you know, cause I, you hear about guys being really banged up and that are still in the lineup, but it's just been more of a uh, more of an underperformance thing. I don't think they're going to come out and call out players, especially like a Tulowitzki who's under contract for a few more years. I don't think they're going to come out and say, "Wow, Troy really sucked this year," and that's we paid him a lot of money and he sucked. You can't really say that, but uh, but I do think that it's just been more of a. I, I blame underperformance more than I do on injury. That's that's my take. What do you think? Adam? Yeah, I personally don't don't. I hope they don't play the injury card because I'm not sure how if later down the line they say, well, you know, we've had a lot of injuries and it was, it was tough to catch up, you know, um, circumstances dictated that this is just the way it, it turned out to be. Well, at the same time now, or not one or two weeks ago, they said, okay, well, we're still in, the, in a position to contend. 
the facts are the same now and that towards the end of the season. It doesn't matter either way. So to say, you know, if at the end of it they say, look, we, we just had some bad injuries. That's just the luck of the draw. Well, my response was, it would be, well, you said you were in position to contend. You should have done what it took to maintain that or at least progress from ah, that. But that's, that's opening somewhat of a Pandora's box because that was, that was the concern when the season started this year. The way that uh, the acquisition of going out and getting Pierce and Morales was ultimately provided to the fans of Toronto by management was this kind of... Um, tremendously pragmatic rationale that these were the kinds of players that could help them stay competitive instead of going with the fan favorite. And I mean, God, Lord knows, I don't want to be, revisit that again because I've, I've, I've been asked to comment on it so many times. I'm, I'm quite frankly, my, my own voice, what's done is done. Edwin is no longer a blue Jay, but you can't help but wonder where sometimes the smallest or more in this case, significant decision can have an impact chemistry in the clubhouse he was he was very much a part of the team that all three of you have described was competing in 15 and 16 um it makes me wonder whether or not management understands those intangibles which might make it easier for them to trade away a josh donaldson or get rid of troy tulowitzki's contract even though we know that's so that intangible is so rare and fleeting in baseball isn't it i mean if not for what tulowitzki and donaldson have brought to this franchise none of this would have happened what they really did was not just about performing well on the field but but making those around them understand guys this is baseball and we're here to win yeah and you know you reach a point with those guys um you know going back to the whole contract thing you know even russell martin um i think in his first year in toronto what did he make like eight million and then it went up to 14 now he's at 20 you know so having it's not really directly answering your point, but I just got me thinking more about just the state of the contracts and, and the situation with these guys. Um, you know, the, eventually when you take a stab, say, say they brought back Edwin Encarnacion. That's where I was going with this, I guess. Say they brought him back. Well, they probably were committing four years at $25 million minimum, let's say, just for the sake of this conversation. Well, now you've got Encarnacion to pay for another three years. If this had, if, And he's had, you know, for the most part, he was struggling for the first half of the season. Obviously, that could have been totally different, um, you know, if he was still in Toronto. Maybe he's more comfortable there. Maybe that changes everything. But but I understood at the time why they why they were reluctant to give a longer term con- big money contract to another aging veteran, um, knowing that they already had the contracts of Russell Martin to pay a twenty million a year, Troy Tulowitzki to pay a twenty million a year, Josh Donaldson's making seventeen million this year, he'll make more next year. If they wanted to have a chance to keep him, they weren't going to be able to keep in a Carnacion. And had this season gone well, I think Donaldson would have been a, um, a candidate to be re-signed. But uh, they had to. You know, yeah, and I think, you know, as much as people didn't like Morales and, and Pierce um, taking the place, you know, that money being spent on those guys instead of Encarnacion, they were short-term risks. You know, Pierce signed a two-year deal and Morales signed a three-year deal. So instead of spending $25 million a year uh, for four or five years for an, for an Encarnacion, you're spending $6 million for a Pierce and, uh, you know, what is it, $14 million for Morales. So it's just a, I think it was the commitment in the window that they were going to have to give the Carnacion. And had the season gone poorly uh, with Carnacion as well, we're in a worse spot. I remember that according to John Hammond, they offered Edwin four years eighty million around there. Yeah, and maybe it's twenty million. So then, but yeah, I was trying to remember the numbers, but I think it was their initial offer was yeah, I think four years and eighty. You're right. Yeah, actually, you're right. 
Yeah. But as to a point that what we were chit-chatting about earlier, though, that was what the market ended up being. You know, we thought the market value was going to be this, and we were giving him a fair deal for that time. That's how the market panned out, and maybe that's what we're looking at down the road here. Power hitters are not making as much money as they used to. I was very shocked to see that this offseason, but I think it's to the testament of what we were talking about earlier. The game is changing, too. You need to play more of the station-to-station, not wait for the home run. You've even seen the downfall of the Yankees here in the last few months because you know Aaron Judge is still doing what he was doing, but everybody around him has been falling around, falling off. So, same well, time deal. Yankees, speaking of the Yankees, that's a perfect example because Chris Carter, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, led the National League in home runs last year, and he was DFA'd like 10 days ago. You know, he yeah, he brought he back. But, uh, <laughs> so, there, there's an example. The guy that led the league in home runs and lost his job half a year later. No, I was going to say, I guess this one's to the point that the, the, the age of just like being reliant on the long ball is dead. Well, the, the, the mm-hmm. era itself, it's, it, the era has definitely changed in terms of, of how organizations look at it from a, a business perspective of justifying investing in players who can hit home runs but don't have the ability to do anything else than go up there and swing at the shoe, you know, at, at, the, at the shoe tops and then realize that they've got a one-dimensional player. I believe Chris Carter makes around the same amount of money as Dellen uh, Betances. So, I mean, if you, if you think about it, Betances and Carter alone – are making less money than Kendris Morales and providing the Yankees with an right. infinite amount of value in the roles that they're in. And I'm, that's what I'm alluding to over and over again, gentlemen, his leadership is having a general manager and an owner slash president who's on the same page and realizes the best way to develop their club. And I asked you, all three of you, about this the other, the other day. I said, how does the Shapiro regime distinguish itself from the Anthopolis era? And that's what's so fascinating about the next few weeks is we will really know that, won't we? I mean, one way or another, we're going to find out what this organization stands for in terms of investing in an on-field product so fans get their money's worth. That's my concern. Yeah, and it's going to be a tricky time to navigate. It really is. Because I do think that uh, Shapiro and Atkins are builders, uh, not buyers. But... uh, but they do want to. They do have a responsibility to keep butts in the seats. So it's going to be tricky because you can't uh, you can't do a complete teardown. You have to keep somewhat of the faith of the fans. You know, we've been getting forty thousand, or I think we're averaging like thirty nine thousand or something at home still. Um, so to go back down to fifteen, like we talked about, um, it's not something that I'm sure Rogers wants to see happen. So it's going to be it'll be very very interesting to see how these guys what they approach as far as short term and long term. I think the only th- other thing, just on this last point that I would add is. I think it'll also show how much faith they have in their minor league system. You know, right now they do have some guys that are that are impressing. You know, we the Bichettes and the Guerreros keep coming up, but we, you know, it'll depend on how much they believe in in uh, in what they've got as well. Uh, I think as, as far as like the timeline for the rebuild. Um, you know, if they keep if they entertain, I don't think they're going to entertain trading any of the three young pitchers, but uh, but uh, that would be very reflective of what they how they see their future. And if they yeah, do decide I, I mean, to trade would, the three on pitchers for some reason, that's going to reflect on the fact that how much they think they're going to be competitive over the next years or their money constraints absolutely. or anything. All of a sudden, if you start trading the Sanchez's, Osuna's, and everything like that, it's like, oh, the bank's empty. We're starting from scratch, you know? Yeah, I don't I don't think they're going to trade any of their, their youth or the, uh, the, the pieces that have um, a lot of control. Um, if anything, I think the writing's on the wall. I think they were hoping for a sweep uh, this um, – series to do to try to talk them into not 
being quote unquote sellers, but if they're not going to sell pieces that are um, tied to expiring contracts or um, age or what have you, they're not going to do anything at all. And I think that's the, the sad reality of it because I don't think they want to let go of any of their, their prospects. I think they, they love the youth and they love the potential that this organization in the minor leagues at least has. So I think the writing's on the wall that because of this, even with the split, I think they're approaching the season as, I don't want to say a failure, but they're not going to compete. You saw a little bit of a glimpse of what the management did when they were in Cleveland, too, because you got to look at that Cleveland team right now. That's mostly a built-from-the-ground-up team. Yeah, you did bring in Edwin this past season, but the Cleveland Indians, you know, that pitching staff is all homegrown for the most part, if anybody wants to correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't Other think of anybody Miller, in that. Yeah. Yeah, other, other than Miller, bringing yeah. in Miller, but the starting staff and the majority yeah. of the bullpen, they've done all that themselves. So yeah. I'm kind of almost expecting them to run with that idea a little bit, but they're going to have some little bit more money, it sounds like, to me, when they need it. And we saw that a little bit with the Anthopolis era. They, they were able to coax uh, you know, the Rogers Bank to open up a little bit and get some of those guys around the trade deadline to eat the contract that they're, you know, currently in money-wise. So maybe that's where they're going, just, you know, sit pat this year. If we compete, we compete and run with the kids when they come up, you know. But they're going to have to start making some decisions with these kids and then they're going to be getting toward the AAA levels and stuff in the next year or so. So analysis, guys, great insight. Um, I don't want us to think – that uh, there's a need to be cynical per se. We just need to be realistic. I think we can all agree that there are tough times ahead for this franchise, tough times ahead for the next few weeks of executive decision-making. I want to thank all three of you for joining me. You've been listening to Adam Corsair, Craig Borden, and Chris Henderson. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. My pleasure. As always.